This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, rostering and timesheets without the usual chaos. You've got to lead by example and you have to be disciplined and, you know, just learn to take control of your mind and put things that don't need to be at front of mind at that time on reserve for later and take well, good notes and, and, you know, approach it later when that is the right time for those things. This is The Luminaries on the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Over the last decade, there have been a throng of new operators creating the new wave of Australian cuisine, many steering the conversation in regards to food. But there have been some changing our perceptions of the dining experience too, while working out a business model that is also self-sustaining. Tristan Rosier is the chef and co-owner of Arthur Restaurant in Surrey Hills. Tristan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have you on the show. You made an incredible impact from day dot, bringing Arthur to Surrey Hills with such a, a different progressive sort of offering. Um, did, did it feel like that's what you were doing at the time or was, were you just doing something you believed in? I think I just, we were doing something that we believed in, I guess. Um, we weren't really paying attention to, you know, how we were perceived necessarily, more just like putting our head down, this is what we want to do, and, you know, trying to do that as best we could. Potentially, um, there was something we could have learnt from maybe putting our head up a little bit more and sussing things out. But to be honest, like, you're just so busy, um, you kind of just use your instincts and try and, um, try and become, I guess, you know, what your idea is of, of what you want to be. But that is something that I've, I've really learned that it takes quite a few years to really become what you want to do and, and how you want to do things. And it's definitely trial and error and you have to listen to the market and your audience and your staff and, and, and sort of keep working it, I suppose. Well, take us back to when the plans were first in action for Arthur and, and what that vision was and what it took to pull it together. I mean, for me at the time, I was working um, at a small restaurant called Farmhouse, which I sort of worked at on and off for about uh, probably four years. And I knew that that model was working really well. So I knew like at a baseline, I could I could at least replicate that in some way. Um, so that was definitely what really shaped like doing it on my own or on our own and doing it um, in, in the similar format, which I really believed in um, and just, just wanting to, to do our version of it, I suppose, and maybe doing a slightly bigger version of it because farmhouse is quite small. Um, but it did really take us quite a few years to get, you know, everything in place and I, I really know now that timing is everything and things are delayed for a reason sometimes you need to have all the right pieces of the puzzle at the ready to on, embark on something you know and sign a lease and be committed to it um so while it was we were very impatient at the time and it was just a huge amount of setbacks i think it was what really got us in the right headspace to do it and to commit to doing it and um and to be able to follow through with it. Tell us about the location that you chose and, and why that really worked for your idea. You know, it's one of these things. We, we actually had like potentially three different locations in mind. Um, 
it's funny because where we have actually ended up having Arthur is um, is the first site that we actually looked at. It's right next to where we lived, like literally, like we lived in the building next door to it, and we saw. Um, and this this will sum up why timing is everything. We saw that it was um, the people who were currently trading in there were were trying to sell the business, um, and we looked at it, and you know the fit out needed a lot of work, and our budget was like minuscule, so it was not really possible for us to buy the business and then basically gut it and refit it out the way we wanted it. So, um, and, and also we had been looking for something slightly smaller than what Arthur is. So, um, I guess it was just ruled out at that point. Um, we then looked at sites in Enmore and Paddington, um, which both ended up falling through for different reasons. I mean, we had paid deposits on, uh, on sites and had to, you know, almost go through litigation to get that money back because, you know, of, of different deals falling through and things like that. And then, you know, a year passed in that time and, you know, that business that was operating in the space of Arthur had, had actually just decided to close its doors and no one ended up buying the business um, and it was completely gutted. So, you know, the circumstances in that 12 months changed from having to buy a business and then renovate it to this thing's been gutted. We can just move in and, you know, do our renovation and, and open. So, you know, timing really is everything. Take us back to when you first got the keys and and what it took and what it felt like building your, your own restaurant for the first time. I mean, it was fairly nerve wracking. I think <laughs> getting the keys was a relief because at that point you've gone through, you know, weeks if not months of negotiating on leases and um you know just having to you know at that point really um learn what's involved in, in that process alone and and getting advice and paying for advice which is costly so you don't basically end up in a position where you can't get out of things or you know things ends up costing more than what you realize and you know, negotiating that lease and, and learning what all of those terms mean, you know, like I'm a chef. So <laughs> learning that stuff is, is, you know, is important step in becoming a business owner. Um, so to get the keys was like actually a massive sigh of relief that we could just actually just focus now on, you know, renovating and getting open, um, you know, and I think, yeah, reflecting on it was, um, it was a daunting time for sure. You know, as I said, we don't have, we didn't have a huge amount of money at all. And, you know, I would be, you know, sitting down at the computer and just like dropping 20 grand, like paying off the credit card and going again, you know, buying stuff. It's pretty daunting seeing that money going out. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of months on opening, um, opening nights and soft openings and things. I remember actually, uh, at the end of the, the night, I'd just been so busy on, on our first soft opening. And, you know, I think we just charged, you know, half price for the food and maybe half price for drinks on that night for family and friends. And the manager came over to me with a piece of paper that had the takings for the night. And I just had completely forgot that money would actually come in at some point, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, we made three grand. Wow, that's amazing. I thought that was um, that was awesome. But actually, that was actually not a lot of money. <laughs> Arthur became the canvas for you to paint your picture as a chef and tell your story. Tell us about the creation of the menu. The construct of it was quite different to what restaurants were offering at the time. 
um, and, and, and how it allowed you to express your cooking as well. Yeah, I think like, I mean, it's very different now. I think we've, we've sort of COVID has molded us into what we are now a little bit. And I think now Arthur is more who we've always wanted to be. I think in the beginning, there were a lot of factors which sort of shaped, you know, what price point we entered the market and, um, and how we definitely wanted to eat. You know, we wanted to be more of a casual venue. Um, we wanted to offer a set menu, but it was shared. You know, it would almost be like if you go to a restaurant with a few friends and sort of, you know, just trust the waiter to order for you. We wanted it to be that kind of a vibe. Um, and, you know, doing a set menu really allows us to sort of create a menu that flows really well. And, you know, things can go in a progressive way. Um, you know, working in a la carte restaurants in the past, sometimes you would have people just order the weirdest combination of either dishes or dishes and drinks. And you just thought like, that is just going to go so bad. Like a, a piece of like fish with like a cheese board and espresso martini at the same time. So in a way, a lot of it was about us taking a bit of control back. Um, and, you know, we sort of just put our head down and thought this is what we want to do. And I think like we we're pretty uncompromising on that. Um, but it did allow us to, you know, give people a good range of different dishes and different things to try and have some dishes that were more safe, but other dishes that sort of push people sort of, um, you know, palates a little bit and challenge them definitely. Um, and I think, you know, I think our menu was like $70 when we opened for that five course meal. Um, so I think it represented really good value and, uh, it placed us in an interesting place in the market. Definitely. What was the interaction with customers like in those early days? Did you have any problems with um, no shows and um, perceptions of value, even though $70 is incredible value for five courses? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's all market-based. I think at those prices, um, you're tapping into a certain market who expect like a larger portion. And we certainly did. I think our portions are definitely like, I would say, per dish smaller, but we offer more dishes now. Um, so back then, I think, you know, I remember one day someone, you know, said that the portions were so ridiculously small and you couldn't believe that, you know, we were charging $70 for them. I, and I just couldn't believe it. You know, if you work it out, it's just like, you know, it's such little money per actual dish per portion that we're charging people, you know, it could be like $7, you know, per, per, per course per person um, that we're charging them, which is just ridiculously cheap. If you had to order all of those dishes on an a la carte menu, they might be, you know, 20 to 25% more expensive. So, you know, our efficiencies that we're built by offering only a set menu, we reduce our wastage and reduce our staff costs. That's where we are. What's what allows us to, to, to sort of charge the $70 and, and still make a profitable business. So I think to hear feedback of like, oh, their portions are a little bit small or whatever, <laughs> I thought it was just a bit of a kick in the teeth, to be honest. But, um, you know, and, and we were definitely, you know, from day one, took credit cards and, you know, charge no shows and those kinds of things. We're always, you know, pretty fair about it and sort of approached every um, sort of scenario as its own thing. And, um, you know, if it was like a table of six dropping to a five on the night, you know, we would, we would probably charge them, but we would also give them the food for the sixth person, for example. So, um, you know, I think it, it's fair, it's give and take, um, you know, definitely we pissed off some people for sure. Um, but I think, 
you know, you're going to work for the majority. And a lot of people understand that a small business this size, you know, charging relatively fair pricing, I think, you know, they get it most of the time. Did that decision um, have a positive impact on um, people booking and, and also financially for you? Yeah, I think, you know, I know Surrey Hills is quite accessible, particularly now with the tram and things like that. But, you know, we are not that far away from the city and you know, there's definitely like lots of people around the area. Um, but I think, you know, we've always, we're always going to be a destination venue. You know, we're not in a strip of shops or a strip of restaurants, like say for, for like Potts Point or Paddington or something like that. So Arthur was always going to be a destination for us. Foot traffic was never, you know, at the forefront of our thinking, you know, we just thought, um, and even at the time, I think the tram was being worked on. So this end of Surrey Hills was just an absolute nightmare. So we knew that people were going to be booking to come. It was going to be a planned night out. Um, so really, we've always been a kind of bookings only restaurant. I think we've probably only done maybe, honestly, like 20 tables of walk-ins ever, you know. Yeah, it's really, really low. So, if, you know, it, it lends itself in that sense as, as well to um, – to taking the 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 the, uh, the credit card details and and making people honour that booking because uh, the chance of us actually refilling that seat if you no show is is really really low um, and it's also nature of a set menu restaurant even if people do come in they're like oh this place looks cute we'll go in for a bite to eat and they realise that they only do a set menu you know that's very unlikely that's going to convert to them sitting down. Um, you know, people, uh, if they're going to spend, you know, upwards of a hundred dollars, I think that's a bit more of a planned experience. I want to get into your cooking and, and what you're doing at Arthur these days, but take us back to when you were young, what, what was the lure to bring you into hospitality? I think like from, I mean, to go all the way back, I mean, I started when I was around 14 years old and I started as a kitchen hand in a, in a cafe in Cronulla. Um, you know, I was, I was going quite poorly at school and, um, you know, it just wasn't for me. You know, I just found myself staring out the window most of the time, like wishing I was somewhere else. So, um, you know, that was met with a fair bit of negativity You know, I wasn't doing particularly well with grades and thing. And, you know, you're always failing. Um, so my parents sort of said, you know, you're going to have to get a job. And to be honest, I always wanted to, to just earn a bit of money and that kind of thing. So part-time work was something that was always on the cards. So, you know, I got a job in this cafe uh, where my, my grandmother actually knew the owner or the owner's parents, funnily enough. And um, I got the job as a kitchen hand. I'd work uh, on the weekends. I actually got out of school sport for the last year of high school so that I could go and work both days on the weekend in the cafe. Um, and, you know, it seems like quite a mundane task just doing dishes. But, you know, in a fast-paced cafe – in this tiny little pot wash area, like you have to hustle, like from the moment you walk in and I don't know, there was just something about that kind of buzz. that was a bit fun and exciting. And, you know, you're doing dishes. It's not like, you know, it's not that amazing of a job, but you know, people need you, you know, and now I realize that actually, you know, the kitchen hand is one of the most important roles in the, in the kitchen, you know, and, and um, people actually really want you there and to perform and they need you. So, you know, that led into, you know, you're, you're killing it at the dishes, you're doing a good job. Well, okay, he cut this bread, you know, cut these tomatoes. And then now they become your responsibilities. And then, 
you know, after a few months, then, you know, they hire another kitchen hand and you start doing more, you know, cooking prep jobs and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was, it was just, it was just a positivity and, and being a part of something, albeit just a small cafe, like at the age of 14, that's like huge, you know, and getting the financial reward of it every day, you know, that was, that was pretty satisfying, I suppose, you know, getting like, $2.50 $2.50 in cash tips a day and <laughs> like, you know, save it up for a week and then go buy some phone credit or something. I don't know. That's for me at that time. That was just super rewarding. <laughs> Take us into the commercial kitchen. When you started working in, um, you've worked in some of the best restaurants uh, in Sydney. What was it like in those early days and, and what did you take out of it? Um, I think like when I've, sort of first got into like more fine dining or, you know, I, I think the the first real like dining restaurant I worked in was Est and, um, you know, I was already a qualified chef at that time. And I think I was, you know, 22 years old or something like that. Um, and, you know, I thought I was fairly well experienced, you know, I've been probably cooking, you know, a good amount of years and um, I'd had a fair few, you know, good experiences and sort of done a bit of management and, you know, cooked at a really good level going into a a restaurant like that, you know, you're back to square one. You realize that what you knew is just a drop in the ocean of, of what there is to know. And the standards are so high and you've got to just like sink or swim. And it's really that environment. Um, and to be honest, I found it quite difficult to adjust to that. You know, it was just definitely very eye opening. Um, and you know, I probably threw up every day for the first two weeks on the way to work with nerves. Um, but you just got to like stick it out and believe in what they're doing. And, you know, they're, there at the top for a reason at the time, you know, it was like one of the only three, three out restaurants in New South Wales and, you know, just an institution. And there was a lot of great chefs there, obviously working really hard, you know, there's a lot to learn. You've just got to get past that initial stage. And then once you're accepted in there, you know, you're part of the team and there's, there's just a lot to be gained. I think. What did you learn from working in those restaurants from a business sense that became useful when you opened your own venue? Look, I think um, there's definitely things in my career that I categorize as things to learn and things to like learn, not what to do, you know, um, and like at that time in a restaurant like Est, you know, it was all about like customer focus and like timings and being ready for service and things like that. But almost to the detriment of things like food costs and things like that, you just have to be ready. And, you know, like, you know, definitely things like sustainability wasn't really at front of mind, you know. So I suppose reflecting on it, I look at it and I think, fuck, how do we do things that way? It just seems a little crazy, but it's just the way that things had always been done. I think, you know, certainly in the last, you know, five, 10 years, things have changed a lot in that sense. You know, everyone's got sustainability at their front of mind. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the many hats that chefs wear now is just growing and growing. The expectation is higher and higher on, you know, a chef or a business owner and how they operate, you know, it's looking back at those experiences and, you know, trying to take that as your baseline and then, 
you know, manipulate things from that point and be like, okay, this is how we used to do things. You know, is, was that necessarily the best way? Can we, you know, rethink that into the future? This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, helping managers and staff do their best work. At Deputy, we're on a mission. We're on a mission to simplify shift work for every cafe, every restaurant, every bar, every business owner, every dishy, every waiter, every cook, every sous chef. This is the industry that will thrive with Deputy. For more information, go to deputy.com. Well, how do you manage your creative side of things of being the chef as well as running your own business? It's definitely challenging, you know, and it's not, not challenge, not only challenging for like, cause those two things lean on each other so much. It's challenging to get yourself into the different mindsets you need to be in to, to work on those areas of the business. You know, like you can't always just turn on creativity, you know, it just like, for me, I find it, it's a really weird thing, but I get really creative in the middle of service, you know, when the restaurant is churning, we're fully booked and we're, um, you know, we've got all the plate up happening and we're calling orders and running food and cooking and things like something about that all happening. And it just, your brain is really active at that point, just gets my creative juices flowing. So often I am mid service talking to chefs about like ideas for the menu or, you know, like completely left field ideas and I have a notepad and pen next to me. So I jot stuff down so I don't forget it because, you know, things are moving a million miles an hour. You, you can tend to forget things. Um, so like, you know, that's not always an ideal time for that. <laughs> and to try and get back into that headspace, sometimes you have to draw on those notes you've taken and, and try and get back in the space to, to be creative. Um, but then on the flip side, you've got the business side of things where, you know, it's like meetings with managers and like cost meetings and talking about like profits and, and trying to, you know, work out costs for, for drinks and staff costs and forecasting and stuff. It's like, it's equally as satisfying, but for different reasons, you know? Um, but you know, there's times as well where you, you've scheduled these meetings and you arrive for them and you just think <laughs> I'd rather not be here. I'd just rather be doing something else. So it's hard. And, you know, maybe when you're working for other people, you know, you've got other people who are setting the expectation, but when you've got to set that expectation and keep that standard for yourself, it's also hard because you have the power to just choose to delay that meeting if you want to, you know what I mean? So you've got to lead by example and you have to, um, be disciplined and, you know, um, just learn to, to, to take control of your mind and put things that don't need to be at front of mind at that time on reserve for later and take well, good notes and, and, you know, approach it later when that is the right time for those things. You mentioned how different hospitality is these days and how many things have changed. Technology plays an important role in most businesses, what role does it play in hospitality these days? I mean, it's, it's definitely something we use a lot. You know, I think gone are the days of the, you know, the reservations book, that's all online, you know, and, um, you know, something that a lot, you know, we're hiring managers and things like that. You need to make sure that these people have the skills in these areas. Um, everything's just digital, you know, it's, um, 
it's something you need to know what you're doing because you can really stuff things up if you're not pulling on the right strings, you know, not optimizing your seating floor pan. You can, uh, you know, if you've got something wrong in the back end, you could be like turning away bookings without even knowing it, you know, and I've heard of that happening to restaurants, you know, like, you know, they're down on revenue and can't work out why someone goes through the back end and for like three months, they've had half of the dining room, like, you know, only being able to take bookings between an hour window or something like that. So, you know, these things can happen. Um, technology is definitely a positive thing. You know, we, for example, have like, instead of a notebook for all of your recipes, we have it on like some sort of a, an app and you can update the recipes and then every chef who has it in there on their phone, if you update it to the cloud, of course, then the recipe updates in their phone so that, you know, if you thought something was a bit too acidic, you can just drop the lemon juice by 10%. And then now everyone is just making the new recipe, you know, and you didn't even have to tell anyone. So there's definite benefits like that. Um, you know, you just got to know how to use it and, and take advantage of those things. You've been described as part of the new wave of Australian uh, chefs and cuisine. How do you see this new uh, wave emerging and and what does it feel like to be described as part of it? I mean, it's pretty great to be part of that. I think that, um, you know, that's the goal, <laughs> you know. We want to be trying to – I think the, the end goal is trying to define what an Australian cuisine is and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I mean – for us, you know, we use exclusively Australian ingredients, um, you know, except for maybe a bit of fish out of New Zealand or something. Um, but that's just based on availability or quality. Um, but, you know, some people have even said, like, I've had someone write a review on our business saying, like, we came here expecting modern Australian food, but there was no punchy Asian flavours. And it's like, well, <laughs> we don't really do that, you know, but I can see how that could be considered could be considered a modern Australian cuisine as well, right? So it's a hard thing to define. Um, you know, for us, the use of native ingredients is important, um, but I think it has to be done in a really respectful and tasteful way. Um, use it to highlight dishes and not like just put it there for the sake of it, just because it looks cool on a menu to write certain things. Um, you know, I think you just got to be responsible with it and, you know, just try and, yeah, just develop what your idea is of, of that cuisine. Um, but it's definitely, you know, an honor to be considered, you know, you know, a part of that movement. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's a clear direction that we're going and, you know, we just want to, you know, continually day by day, just keep moving towards that kind of goal and improving. Um, and, you know, collaborating, you know, I really like, our team to collaborate on ideas and, you know, I want different techniques coming in to try and bring the best out of the produce. So, you know, working as a team and having that at front of mind, I think, you know, it's definitely going in, in the right direction. You're right. It's hard to uh, describe Australian cuisine because it's influenced by so many uh, global techniques and ingredients and influences, but give give us an idea of, of what your food is like and do you have a dish or two you can tell us about that sort of epitomizes where you're coming from as a chef? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, like if I just flick a few pages of my book here, yeah, it's like we've just been working on the kind of menu for reopening after this COVID lockdown and we've probably gone through about two seasons <laughs> by, by now. I mean, so 
you know, it's, it means not just changing dishes, it's changing, you know, a whole menu. Um, I think like what we like to do, um, is just try being, bring the best out of a great, every ingredient. So maybe we'll pick like a hero ingredient and then try and balance that with different textures, um, and other ingredients that just bring out the best of it. Um, it's harder to explain than you think, but it's, in sense, it's not so difficult of a thing to do. You just need to find what's the best in season at the time and local to us. And then, um, basically prepare that in a way that makes it shine, brings the best out of it using different techniques. Like I won't limit the technique from abroad, but just making sure that it's, you know, applied in a way to bring the best out of the ingredient. Um, and then, you know, whatever that hero ingredient is for the dish, we just want to support that with other things that are going to bring out the best of it. Um, you know, like at the moment, uh, we're looking at doing like a lobster dish, uh, which lobster will feature on our set menu for the first time, actually, um, as not an addition. Um, so we're excited about that. And, you know, that's things you can do with new price points and things. So, um, you know, we're going to do lobster. Um, we're going to do it with like a carrot sauce and we're going to put some, a little bit of ginger and nasturtium with that. Um, and you know, just to the sweetness of the carrot with the warmth, of the ginger, um, the shellfish sort of sauce with the, the shells of the lobster, you know, the sweetness of the lobster meat. Um, and we'll grill the lobster over charcoal, um, to get that nice smokiness through it. And then, you know, a bit of the spice of like the nasturtium as well and that pepperiness, I think it's just using those different flavors and different ways to achieve, um, different ways of seasoning, like that hero lobster, you know, using maybe ginger instead of pepper and like nasturtium instead of pepper or things like that, like the nasturtium sort of caper in a way, but we might pickle them. So it adds another dimension to it. You know, it's just using those different techniques on different elements to like, not only bring out the best of the elements, but bring out the best of the hero dish as well and add texture and all of that along the way. You mentioned at the top of the show that it takes a couple of years to find out or become what you want to be or what you envisaged uh, Arthur to be. Um, tell us about how much it's changed and, and what it's going to be like to dine at Arthur when you open the doors again um, after the lockdown? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, I really do believe it takes a few years to sort of become what you ultimately want to be. And, you know, when we first opened, um, you know, I had an idea of what we wanted and, you know, we, we used to see like 40 people, for example, and now like COVID in a way has shaped that we can't do that anymore. We need to have more space between tables was when we opened, we literally had 10 centimeters between tables because we really wanted a more like, you know, Paris type bistro vibe, you know, where people are close together and it was a community space where, you know, you chat to the table next to you. Um, and of course, you know, that can't really happen anymore. So we've had to find a way to, you know, still make the same money while serving less people. So of course you have to put the price up, but you can't just do that. You need to, you know, give more for that money. So, you know, we've gone from a shared menu now to more of a degustation style menu where everyone gets their own plate for every course. Uh, we do have like more snacky items at the top of the menu where we 
we sort of, uh, they're more shared, but, um, essentially, you know, there's a six course menu now instead of five. Um, we've actually increased the amount of, uh, chefs we have working from three in the beginning. Now I think there's like seven of us. We've got an extra kitchen. Now we put a pastry kitchen in. So we have a full-time pastry chef. We have more floor staff. We used to do 40 covers with three. We've added a whole nother person to do 26 per sitting now. So, you know, I think like what you are in the beginning, you know, and your ideas of what you want your restaurant to be, um, they, they evolve and different factors externally or internally will change that. You know, COVID was a big one, but not the only thing. And when we reopened after the first lockdown, we had to put the prices up, um, and, you know, we, we, we changed our food style. We changed the way we serve things. And, you know, that new price point allowed us room in the food cost to use ingredients we'd never used before. Um, so, like, as I said, you know, lobster will feature this time after lockdown for the first time. And it's, you know, something we've always wanted to use, but it's been out of reach in that price point. So I think you know, the customers have come along for the journey. You know, I have regulars who have been here since day one and every time they come, it's different, it's better. And, you know, you just, if you have the goal of getting better every day, you know, things change and, um, you know, people can see that and, you know, they absorb that. Um, you know, I think, it's going in a good place, but I think where we are now is kind of what I always wanted to really open, but maybe didn't have the balls to do in the beginning. Um, you know, kind of unknown when, when we opened, not much reputation. $70 is very comfortable because people will just come because of the price point. Um, whereas, you know, to charge it over $100 a head for a set menu, I think, you know, you've got to have some sort of notoriety and, you know, um, you know, and confidence to serve the things that, you know, people are going to expect at that price point. Um, but that comes with time, you know, that comes with having systems and, and people and the labor force to be able to produce the food people are expecting for that price. Um, so, you know, you, by just being in business for that amount of time as well, you just have your way of doing things through trial and error. You know, it's the, it's the Arthur way of doing this. You know, you start to build up a collection of recipes and, you know, not even like, you know, recipes for a complete dish, but like base recipes of sauces and seasonings and dressings and things like that and stocks and the way we do things here, which makes us uniquely us, you know, and make it taste uniquely Arthur. So um, it does take time to develop that. And, you know, we're not at the end of that yet, but it goes hand in hand with, you know, the new Australian food movement, I guess. It's just like, you're on this journey, you know, it's what's so appealing about hospitality. It's just this real deep hole of learning. It just doesn't end. <laughs> well, what's exciting you about the next couple of years in a hospitality sense? I don't know. A lot's changing. Hey, like not like even just looking at staff, like the knowledge that even like young staff have these days, young chefs have is just incredible compared to what I had at their age. You know, it's like, even the way they live their lives is different. For example, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, everyone would just go out drinking all the time till like four o'clock in the morning and partying and all that sort of stuff. Like 
all of my chefs just like exercise, like do yoga and like go for runs in the morning before work and like read books and like go to bed early. And it's just like a completely different thing. You know, I think uh, the more of a professional environment, you know, us as business owners make it, you know, the more serious these young chefs are taking things. Um, and I don't know, through like social media and, you know, being able to share content so easily globally, like the knowledge and the wealth of knowledge in these young chefs is amazing. I think it's super exciting for like the next generation to see what they do, you know, and to be in a position now where I can give these younger chefs, these opportunities to like get into more senior roles and really contribute to the menu and see their ideas. It's like definitely rewarding, you know, and, you know, they don't always get it right, you know, but with guidance and mentorship, you can really like sort of show them and, and tweak their ideas and try and bring that out of them. I think it's like super exciting. What is it that you love about what you do? It's challenging. <laughs> it's kind of challenging. Someone like me, I'm always hungry for more. I'm always hungry to, to do more things or to learn more or to, you know, solve more complex things. I think there's not much... <laughs> more like complex than running a restaurant. There's so many things you have to be good at. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at any of them, but like, you know, I'm not even saying I'm the best chef. I, I think there's like way better chefs out there, but I think like, it's just, just so deep of a whole, like, you know, just on the creative side of food, there's just so many possibilities and like different ways of doing things. And like, even to look back at techniques we did two years ago, it's like, wow, that was pretty crap compared to what we do now. It, it's just like constant development and there's just always more to know. And then there's always a new way of looking at things. Like, I think a really good example of like, of that is like, you just got to look at Josh Nyland, right? He's taken like, how people looked at filleting fish and storing fish and completely changed it globally. You know, people's way of thinking of it is completely different. So it just goes to show you every so often there's chefs like that who come out and do something so groundbreaking that everyone thinks, Oh my God, how come we've just been doing it this way and never considered a different way. So, you know, it's exciting because there's people breaking through of breaking free of tradition and finding better solutions to problems. I think it's super exciting. Well, given your success over the next couple of years, do you have anything um, in the works or um, planned for the future with, with Arthur or beyond it? Yeah. Like I think everything at Arthur is just becoming more and more focused on trying to give customers a better experience. So everything we do really is just around trying to make what we do more seamless to make that end product better. Um, you know, be it, we put the pastry kitchen in, so now we can do better desserts more efficiently or, you know, even simple little things like adding more coat hooks in the dining room. So every table has a coat hook to put their coat on and no one's coat gets mixed up. It's all these little things that seem like, like nothing but add up to an ultimate experience for Arthur itself. Like I just see us continually moving in that direction with the food, with the service, with the wine, with, you know, everything we offer, you know, I must've moved layouts of things and 
put new cupboards in different places and bought new glasses and bought new things and new cutlery and new plates so many times now I can't even count, but it's just always trying to find a better way of doing things. Um, so I think we'll just be continuing to sort of do that really, you know, try and find new ways to make the product better. You know, if it's a saving up to buy a new oven to cook better bread, well then, you know, that is on the cards down the line, you know, um, we just want it to be the best version of what it is. Uh, and I think there's no like real shame in, in that in any sense with businesses. If you're like a cafe or a small wine bar or whatever, like you don't need to aspire to be, you know, the top three hat fine dining restaurant or whatever. You just need to, you know, try and be the best version of what you are that you, that you want to be, you know, and, and can be. Um, so for Arthur, that's definitely the trajectory. You know, we definitely will open other venues. Um, uh, we'd love to open something, um, a little bit more casual than Arthur because it's definitely becoming like more of a dining venue and like, we love that about it, but you know, where Arthur was very casual in the beginning, you know, we'd love to have something, you know, at that end of it as well. Um, and I think the sustainability aspect of that is really interesting being able to have something that's more of an a la carte sort of restaurant in unison with Arthur where we can use different cuts in, you know, we could get a fish and use the collars in the bar and then use the fillets in the, in the Arthur's restaurant. So, you know, it's definitely like crossover between venues and things like that. It's exciting. And, you know, Arthur, you know, in the nature of being a set menu, you know, where everyone gets an individual plate. Now you want portion to be identical between people, but that usually means wastage and we don't want that to happen. So finding, having another space where we could do, you know, use the, those other pieces on the menu, like that change really often. I think that that's definitely positive. Well, Tristan, it's an absolute honour to have you on at the Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a bit of your story. Um, I know that there's going to be so much more to it. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Will do. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.